Hey everyone, it's December 18th, 2018, and it's your episode 171 of At Percussion. I'm Casey Cangelosi, and with me as usual are some of our regulars, Megan Arns. Hello. And Ben Charles. Hi everybody. So, yeah, you guys might notice, I guess depending on how you're viewing this, you might notice that we're back on video. I'm saying that kind of with a question mark because I have to see how it works with the editor. And I guess we never really explained why we made such a big switch for probably well over a year. But using Skype and Google Hangouts, you, you drop the file into the video editor and over the course of an hour or something I noticed, you, know, you want to cut out a little splice of silence or something, it became really difficult because the the audio track and the voices would just like gradually get out of sync and then I would have to push it back over and then it would get out of sync again. And I finally just got tired of like guessing like, oh, are Megan's lips moving with her voice? Is Ben moving with his voice? It's like, man, I can't do it anymore. But now that Skype seems to have its own recorder and it seems to be a lot smoother, I thought I'd give it a shot. So I hope you guys are real excited. Yay, I'm excited. Thank you, man. I like video. That's nice of you. Yeah, I think people liked the video. And, of course, you can still listen on iTunes without the video or listen on the Blogspot page without the, the video, of course. Anyway, our, our guest today is an adjunct professor at the Florida International University as well as a teaching artist at the Miami Music Project. She's known for her talents as an orchestral percussionist as well as contemporary solo percussionist, especially pieces for solo percussion and voice. Right, Carly? Um, yeah, I've done a I've done a handful of pieces for theatrical percussion. Theatrical percussion, yeah, I guess that's a slightly different. Yeah, yeah. Well, she's also a percussionist with the Florida Grand Opera and the Palm Beach Symphony, and she's a buddy of ours because she's got degrees from the University of Miami, where she overlapped with Ben, as well as the Boston Conservatory, where she overlapped with Laurel. So, you guys, welcome to the show, Carly Vigna. How's it going? Hey, thank you. That was a really nice introduction. I'm good. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, sure, sure. You're very welcome. What's what's going on lately? How's your summer been? Summer. It's not <laughs> summer. Break. Break. How's your break? <laughs> well, you know, I'm in Miami, so it kind of feels like summer still. Um, See? There you go. <laughs> good safety. You know, it, it's 75 degrees outside. It's okay. Um, yeah, everything's good. Things are things are kind of wrapping up. Um slowly but surely it's like a never-ending transition into break um but yeah yeah cool what do you got ben well if i could start with a story casey said that carly and i overlapped at miami which is uh true but actually we uh we were there the exact same time the whole time we finished exactly the same um but i just wanted to tell a quick story about dissertation writing so carly and i one time decided we were both behind on our dissertation writing and we needed to, to kind of get back on it. And so we decided to have a dissertation writing party. And so I went over to Carly's place at like nine in the morning on a Saturday. And it was very much like that episode of The Office where we're like, all right, we'll write our dissertations, but first we need to have breakfast. <laughs> and we spent probably the next three hours making the most gigantic, elaborate breakfast. And then we were like, shoot, we have 30 minutes to write our papers. <laughs> <laughs> nice. 
Um, but anyway, so well, point is, Carly and I both eventually finished our papers and, and graduated. Um, and I know that in my case, I've had a few things that have popped into my head since then, and I could do like an addendum to my dissertation. So Carly, I was wondering, in the years since you completed your dissertation, is there anything that you would like to add to it or any sort of follow-up research you would like to do? Gosh, um, you know, the, the, the thing, if anything that I would add, by the way, I wrote about three pieces for theatrical percussion. Um, Dressor by Mauricio Cogwell. I wrote about uh, Corporel by Vinko Globacar and Songs 1 through 9 by Stuart Sunder Smith. And um, if anything, one thing that's been on my mind in the years since I, I did all that research and writing um, is how theatrical percussion has informed my performance of of everything that I do, of when I'm playing the, in the opera pit and when I'm playing orchestra and when I'm playing, um, you know, more traditional solo repertoire. So that's really, that's that's the thing that's been on my mind with regards to theatrical percussion since then. But no, as far as the paper goes, I'm, <laughs> I'm done. I'm happy to be done with that document um, and that, that side of things. Um, but yeah, should I go into into some of the things that I've, I feel I've learned from theatrical percussion? I'd sure. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So, so the first thing that I that I realized I really got from it was like a really heightened awareness of like the entire product of the entire artistic product and myself on stage and every movement and action, um, everything that I'm doing, um, and of course, you know, like like incorporating movement into what you're doing, like you can get carried away with it. Um, but really, if you're just like 100% involved in, in what you're doing, like like being really aware of how you look when you're on stage. Um, and I'll give an example. I had a, a recital performance a long time ago. Um, it's a little bit of an embarrassing story, but I was playing a piece with electronics and there was like a minute of electronics at the beginning and, and before you even start playing. And I watched the video back like years later and I saw like I, I turned on the electronics, I pressed play and then I'm like, getting my headphones, like I had a click track for part of it, and I'm like finishing getting set up, but the piece already started, uh -huh. you know? So like as as myself looking back, like that looks ridiculous. Like nobody knows the piece started because I'm like still moving around and doing things. Like there's no focus yeah. um, because I had never watched myself do that. But when you're doing a theatrical piece, like you have to of course record and see like, how does this really look? Um, and everything, even even the way like you walk out on stage and accept applause, if there's applause, like are you walking confidently? Are you walking slowly? You know, there's so many so many variables, um, and your whole your whole your whole character um, while while you're on there on stage performing is so important. The second thing that I feel like I really learned from from preparing and performing pieces for theatrical percussion is that you have to be 100% committed to the performance all the time. And the reason I learned that is because, I guess I guess it was probably the, one of the first pieces I did was To the Earth by Frederick Jevsky. Um, and if you're not like, if you're not into that text, like it's it can come across as like super lame or super weird. That's what I think. Um, you have to just like dive in and be into it. Or, or the same with a piece like Songs 1 through 9, like if you're not into it, <laughs> That is a very, very strange experience. You have to really buy in to the Southern preacher and, you know, all the all the different characters in there. Um, but that goes for everything that we do, of course, too. Like if if there's a part, I always tell my students, if there's a part of you that's thinking about something else, even if that something else is like, uh oh, I hope I don't mess up this hard part. You're not committed like you're not. And the audience can feel that you can always sense like 
is the person like 100% in this moment performing with you. The third thing is is kind of a departure from ego and from being self-conscious. Um, and I always remember my my very first lesson on To the Earth was when I was in Boston and it was with Sam Solomon at Boston Conservatory. And, you know, I had prepared the piece and I was, I was kind of shy about it. Like that was the first piece that I do with any vocalization at all. Um, and I even, I remember like when I was at Boco, I would, I would practice that piece at home because I felt like, what if somebody's in the in the hallway, like listening to me doing this weird stuff? Um, so I was doing it at, at the school for the first time, and I'm in in the practice room, and and I do the whole piece, and and I'm like a little nervous about what Sam's gonna say, and he ends up just telling me like, you need to get out of your box, like you 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 know, you need, and he's like he would yell like just like ah, and then be like now yell back, and I'd be like ah, you know, and, and like we went back and forth like that for. I don't know, a couple minutes and I'm thinking like they're in the hallways of 1260, like everybody, you know, everybody could hear everything. And I'm like, what are people thinking? Sam and I are just in this practice room screaming at each other. <laughs> um, but it was really like you have to get out of out of your shell of like, here's here's I'm me and I'm performing this. Um, and in, in some ways, like especially especially in a piece like Dressur, um, where there's so many, so many weird different things and so many characters you kind of think about taking on or songs one through nine, so many different characters that felt different to me um, performing like, you know, I'm not, I'm not Carly Vigna, this percussionist, you know, I'm like a little shy and, you know, whatever, like you're not that person anymore. You're somebody else. And in, in some ways it's like, it's less personal because you're performing as a, as a character but it's also more personal because you're showing these different sides of yourself that that you might not ever show when you're just just you um so that was that was a really big thing for me and it also helped a lot i used to have more performance anxiety um before i started doing pieces for theatrical percussion um and when when like when you're in it and you're you know performing almost as as someone else or as as a different persona like that 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 changed things for me and then you can harness that energy like you we all know this this nervous energy we get sometimes harness it into something um you know extra energy like adrenaline rather than rather than something that interferes with what you're doing and the fourth like this is the last kind of big big lesson that i think theatrical percussion has taught me is musical problem solving um, like the ways that that we approach different types of pieces and you know this goes for everything in the percussion repertoire there's such a wide variety in what we do but especially in pieces for theatrical percussion because there's so many different elements um, just approaching like how we learn the piece how we how we approach the challenges of learning um, like for example some pieces like corporal or like aphasia because there's so many physical movements you can't read the piece like you can't sit and read the music you can't put the music in front of you and perform it there's no way to like you can't even really practice that way because you can't be you can't do everything and be reading it so you really have to memorize at least I found as you're as you're working through like like this little bit I'm going to memorize this little like half a measure of corporal today that that might be all you get in an hour uh, or you know in, in one session um, but you really have to memorize it as you're going. And a lot of times we don't have to do that. Um, but some pieces, I think it, it's more it's more productive to do it that way. Or um, pieces like like To the Earth, I spent a lot of time memorizing the text apart from the flower pots because you have to really know it's like two different levels of of things that you're doing. Or the same with some of the some of the spots in songs one through nine. There's text that you have to know that is is kind of over all the percussion playing. And then there's other things that are more incorporated. 
Um, but sometimes it makes sense, same as when we're playing marimba solo, sometimes it makes sense. Let me like do the right hand part and the left hand part separate, make sure they're really solid before I put it together. Um, so all these pieces kind of kind of require sometimes different approaches that can help us be more efficient when we're learning and more efficient in the practice room, um, depending on depending on what we're doing. So those are the big things that that I've thought about a lot as, as I'm preparing some of these pieces again for some performances coming up in the spring. And, and I think about like, wow, this has really changed so much of the way that I approach performing. And it's it's really cool. Um, and, you know, I don't know if if theatrical percussion and repertoire is for everyone, um, but I know that it's taught me a whole lot. And I, I also find I find that it's really relatable because we're incorporating like these aspects of our performance that's so human, you know, like using our voice or using our bodies, like the piece of phasia, everybody can identify with all the actions that you're doing, even if you're not sure, you know, what this means, that it's a light bulb. Um, you know, like just, just anything that's a physical task that you're doing with your body, everybody has a body that can do all of these things. Um, so I find they're, they're really relatable even to people, um, you know, musicians and non-musicians and artsy people and people that have never heard of or have no idea what theatrical percussion even means. Um, all this kind of strange avant-garde stuff, I find it's, it's, it's really relatable. It reaches people sometimes in a different way. There's like so much you said to just like sit here and unpack. Like it's almost like we should yeah. just call the episode there. <laughs> but yeah, yeah so much of this resonates decision. with me because I remember actually one of the first of these pieces that I played was aphasia. And I remember actually after I learned aphasia, I went over to Carly's apartment and, and it was like, hey, I just learned this piece. Can I can I play it for you guys? And I played it for Carly and her roommate. And they were just like, yeah, it's kind of boring. <laughs> And like that, that was like, it's become sort of like a, almost like a trademark piece for me, a piece that, you know, I'm very, very in love with and performing. Um, but yeah, like it was funny, like so much what you're talking about with like full commitment and, you know, can't have your mind on other things and, uh, you know, learning a, a you know, a, a new adventure of how to learn a piece and all that sort of thing resonates with me. Um, but I, I'm thinking back to like our studies at Miami and I, I correct me if I'm wrong, Carly, but I think like a lot of the way you stumbled into this sort of theatrical percussion stuff was actually almost like an accident. You told Svet that you were interested in doing like musical theater, like Broadway pit sort of work. And he like misinterpreted that as theatrical percussion. Oh, Is that right? It's, it's half and half because uh, like I was already, I was really getting into this stuff in Boston and um Really, really like my introduction to theatrical percussion was when I was doing my undergrad at University of Maryland. Um, Lee Hinkle was a grad student at that time, and he was like, he was playing The Authors by Stuart Sunder Smith. I saw him do Corporel. And so I saw this stuff, and I was like, someday I'm going to do this. Like, this is powerful. Um, but no, you're right that, that during my audition with Svet at University of Miami, he said, What are some of your other interests? And I remember I had just played a run of Sweeney Todd, and it was like super fun. Um, up in Boston, and I was like, yeah, late, like, lately I've, I've really enjoyed theater, and I think he thought I meant theatrical percussion, and so I get there, and he's like, here, I think we want to, well, let's do dressor, let's do this stuff, and like, I was on board, I loved it, but I think there was a little, a little uh, miscommunication there, Boston but it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> but, so, well, I was just going to ask, I mean, I think back to our time at Miami, and I think for both of us, like, I remember... Uh, with Carly, Svet would say, you know, okay, we'll come back with, you know, the first seven pages of songs one through nine memorized or something. And it was just like, that's, that's impossible. Like, <laughs> and then, but like, then when, once you get over that initial reaction, it's like, oh, it's actually, yeah, that's totally possible. And it, like, 
I think we really both grew a lot under as players under Svet. So, Carly, could you tell us about uh, what you experienced studying with Svet and like your sort of overall what you got out of it? Yeah, that's a that's a big question, but I I love it. It's a good one. It's one I thought a lot about. Um, yeah, Svet Svet's the kind of teacher that will will set this expectation for you. And I think everybody in the studio had this experience of like, I don't think I can do that. Like that's impossible. There's no way. You know, even like semester after semester, we had that experience. And then except for Dimitri, I think. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> And then and then you'd be like, well, I got to do it because Svet told me I got to do it. So let's OK, I'm going to try to make it happen. Um, and then I, I don't know, men, you probably feel the same way. Like we all achieved things that we didn't know we could do um, more than more. You know, I, I had a lot of teachers that pushed me, but it was like it was the first teacher that like my eyes would get big and be like, what? Like, really? And yeah, here, we're going to do this piece. Um, like Dressor was like that the the first year that we did it at UM. Oh, hey, Laurel. Hey. <laughs> Laurel's the here. First... Laurel Black, everybody. Sorry, I'm joining late. Robin just fell asleep. Nice. Glad you're here. That's late for him. He's usually he's usually out a little before now. That it is. Yes, we are creating a new routine. I think. Anyway, continue. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> That's all right. Um, the first year that we did Dressor at, at UM, it seemed like an insurmountable task. It was going to be on my recital and like some other concerts that semester, and we had to build the whole set. Um, like we went if to. I can, whole, if I can interrupt, Carly at the same time as Dressor was also working on the Bartok Sonata with me, so that's like an hour <laughs> of music right there. <laughs> that's right. Plus the rest of my recital, and we had that that premiere of uh, Sleepers Duo. That was a crazy year. Um, so we're going to the hardware store and like finding all this lumber and like figuring out we got to build tables, we got to build this platform. It was like so much, and then also memorize this whole thirty-minute piece. Um, and and that was like we're like we got to make it happen. Like we have this deadline. Svet said we got to do this. We got to have this much of the piece by this day. And yeah, that was that was um, the kind of teacher that will push you past where you think your farthest boundary is. Yeah, well, I guess question for everybody, because I know some of Laurel and I students have asked, like, hey, I want to play a theatrical piece. And I feel like we often either do pieces with with theatrics or speaking or even tape pieces, maybe less so tape pieces now. Those are, seem to be more common. But, but yeah, we, we seem to introduce those to ourselves in like master's degree level. And I'm just wondering, do you do you all know like what's the easiest theatrical piece? What's a great starter theatrical piece for mm. someone who's already interested in it but is maybe just very young? I I get asked this question um, sometimes, and I've thought about it. And I think um, "To the Earth" is a really good starter piece because it's text and it's relatively simple playing, um, and you have to memorize it. But it's not it's not a huge departure from from what you already do as a percussionist. Um, but uh -huh. I think some, some others that are good are um, something like board games by Joe Tompkins, uh -huh. uh, or even table music. Um, maybe maybe even something like Stubernick, like where, where we're kind of uh -huh. incorporating specific movements, but it's not you know quite right. so dramatic. I like the Stubernick answer a lot. I never thought of that one as, sure. a, yeah. as, as theatrical, but you're totally right. It, it, it certainly is. I think it's... The, the there's nice young thing. as in like music reading, but I think there's also young as in like they want to play something their friends are going to like. They want to play something that, that isn't like 
so heady and out there and abstract that only the comp faculty is going to like it. You know, like a lot of them, at least that's that's what I've heard. I was going to say the, the nice thing about uh, To the Earth is like the the cost to get your foot in the door. I mean, the score is free and the pots cost, you know, less than $10. So even if you start it and you hate it, it's not like you're out you know, $30 for a score as well as whatever. But I was going to add another Jevsky piece, maybe just for a younger student to just do a movement of is also Fall of the Empire. Um, there's the uh, the global warming movement of that in particular, I think is uh, kind of very blatantly appealing to younger audiences. And then um, also, uh, Casey, your uh, bad touch, I think falls into that category of not super difficult, but uh, an interesting learning adventure. And also, I think just very sort of cool for audiences to watch. I don't think that, you know, most, I shouldn't say most, I shouldn't generalize, but many undergraduate audiences wouldn't be super receptive to like Global Car right off the bat. But something like Bad Touch, where it's kind of hip and kind of edgy and dark seeming, I don't know, like I think that younger audiences could get into that. I think it's too heady. It's way too deep. I will say that what the little drawing constellations thing at the end, it goes on for too oh. long. Casey. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Yeah. How many people have told you that? <laughs> A lot of people just skip that. They just skip it entirely. I've seen it too. <laughs> I just did it. He's like, "Do you think I should just not do the end?" I was like, "No, it's part of the piece. You got it." <laughs> You're like, "Yeah, totally." In fact, yeah, just screw the end. Jeez. <laughs> well, thanks, Ben. That's that's nice. A tidbit about to the earth. So that's what came to my head with this question was to the earth, and um, I just wanted to say a few years ago at a competition, GK was judging, and you know when it was her turn to do a master class and everything. Of course, she played velocities and something else, just stupid hard. But then she did to the earth also, yeah. which was really cool because it's certainly not her wheelhouse. I mean, I guess maybe it is, but that's not how you typically think of Jihei, at least me. I, I don't. Um, and it was cool what she said beforehand. She was like, I don't usually do things like this. Um, so I'm really nervous to try this one. And she just like blowed our minds by playing these other things. But she was like, this one makes me nervous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the end. Yeah, Carly, sweet. do you know do you know All Too Consuming? No. Oh, that's my favorite. Diana McIntosh. I've talked about it on the show before. It's just the latest one I've learned. It's one of Bev Johnston's Canadian composer. Uh, cool. Yeah, it's, it's really, really cool. Have you, have you heard the one that Brian Calhoun does? It's like an absurdist story. It's marimba and voice. The Connection? Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, I mean, that's by by no means is that like a beginner one, but that's, that's a Nancy a cool one. Yeah, one. I think yeah. you have something this week, right? I do. I decided that I was going to do a little sequence of topics focusing on composer collectives. I just feel like um, there are several really active composer collectives in our new music scene, and I thought it would be fun to just kind of kind of highlight each of them. Uh, so this week, I want to talk about Kinds of Kings. Have you any, any of you heard of this composer collective? No. It's an all-female uh, group of composers that are all based in the U.S. And they are Gemma Peacock, who's from New Zealand, Shelley Washington, who's from the U.S., actually from Missouri, Emma O'Halloran from Ireland, Fanola Merivale from Ireland, Maria Kazani from Cyprus, 
and Susanna Hancock, who's from the US. And they are, here's a quote, they're described by the New Yorker as, quote, distinguished, distinguished young creators who work in diverse styles, end quote. And they focus on amplifying and advocating for underheard voices and producing immersive and inclusive work. They're sort of recently founded, I'm not exactly sure which year, but they are becoming more and more active very quickly. Uh, this year, they have concert dates with a New York-based chamber group called the Metropolis Ensemble and also Desmona, uh, Desmona Ensemble, and both in New York and the Zaffa Collective in Chicago. I'm really excited because they're doing a concert in St. Louis on April 30th uh, as part of the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra's Pulitzer series at the Pulitzer Museum. And they're also in 2019 and 20 coming up collaborating with award-winning Australian ensemble, the Rubrics Collective. So I encourage everyone to check out their music. Their website is excellent. They've got a section um, kind of describing their collective. And there's another section that sort of goes into more depth about each composer. They've also got a section for recordings, concerts, media, friends, other groups. That and under recent media, it's kind of cool. There's uh, several podcasts, uh, articles, sort of blog posts where you can read about their other projects. Um, and then I also just wanted to throw in there um, some of their recent um, performances, like the ones I mentioned, but um, they sort of have like posters and different uh, explanations about each of these concerts that, that have recently happened or coming up under the concert section. So you should all check them out. Um, they have written some for percussion. I'm actually working to commission them right now uh, for a project. So hopefully there will be even more for percussion coming up in the future. So check them out. That's the Kinds of Kings Composer Collective. The website is really cool. I'm just poking around. Can you guys hear me? Yes. Yeah. Oh. oh. I'm we, at so, I'm everyone was like, oh, duh. Yeah. At, uh, what is that? New Music Gathering a few years yeah. ago. You met who? I met Gemma and Shelly. Awesome. Yeah, they were really cool. Yeah. Yeah, Gemma was at our composer festival this summer, but I was not here. Um, and yeah, Shelly and I both went to Truman State, but not at the same time. So it was funny. Mm -hmm. I was reading, as I was thinking about doing this project with them, I was reading their bios and I like just felt such a connection to all of them in, in, in different ways through the types of music they're interested into or where they've been or things like that. And so it just seems like a really cool collective and group of group of women. What's your commission plan? What's the, what, what are you going to go after? Or maybe you don't want to talk about it yet. No, it's okay. Yeah. I'm planning to um, commission a piece from all, all of them. So I'm in the funding stages right now, um, but two solo pieces, two duo pieces with Amy Garapik and then to um, not large pieces, but trio or larger. Very cool. I just like to remind everybody, there's also the Listening to Ladies podcast dedicated to female composers. We have the creator, Elizabeth Blair, on, geez, forever ago. And I think way back then, there were something about, maybe maybe there were 10 episodes or so. And I just ran to the site real quick. It looks like she's still going. She's up to 23 episodes, and they're, they're very thorough and like well-produced and really, really 
good, good episode. So if you're interested in just new composers or especially female composers, uh, also listening to ladies is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And the, I'll talk about the living room music um, composers on another episode, but, you know, they had a booth at PASIC again this year and Gemma was there um, presenting her music and Maria Finkelmeyer, who was one of our past guests as well. I think I talked to Gemma actually. Oh yeah. 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 I just, I was just looking at her picture there. Uh, familiar at PASIC. Yeah. I thought I talked to someone. It's like, I don't know who this person is. They seem like they are one of the composers. Yeah. And I think, Casey, you might have talked about this on, on an episode last year or the year before about John Mackey uh, at Midwest Clinic. Oh, yeah. But I just saw a post that he's doing that again this year. So John Mackey, he says, you know, there is enough music by white male composers and my music is really popular already. So why do I need to have a booth? So right. he, he purchases a booth and donate it, donates it to a diverse collection of composers. So he's got the schedule up and it's another really great collection of composers so i've got a sound for you guys today it's gonna it's gonna go like this So you probably recognize that as Bach, and I'm sure you all know due to the recent news uh, who's who's playing that. So Ben, do you want to tell us who's playing that? Sure. So that was Vida Chinowith, who is a very famous marimba player. She, I believe, has the distinction of presenting the first solo marimba recital in New York City. Um, and she recently uh, passed away, of course. Um, and we spoke about her a few weeks ago when she was put into hospice care. But actually, in light of her recent passing, I, I read a bit more about her and found out some more interesting things about her. I guess for, uh, and I hate to say this because it, it almost downgrades her significance as an artist herself, but the sort of uh, one of the biggest lasting impacts that she has on the field of percussion is that she was the link between Claire Omar Musser and Lee Howard Stevens. She mm -hmm. studied with Musser and then uh, she taught Lee Stevens um, and that's when he developed his quote unquote grip and technique uh, during some pretty intense studies with her in New Zealand. Of course, she was an artist in her own right, so I hate to just use her as that connection piece. Um, but yeah, so uh, it's it's been interesting reading about her and she was sort of like a pretty fearless uh, musician and her uh, her niece that was posting this stuff about her passing, Vida never had any children. Um, her niece that was posting about this said that uh, she posted a couple pictures of her in a bikini back in, I guess, the 50s. And back there, bikinis were considered very risque. Um, so Vida was sort of fearless in portraying herself that way. Uh, also, the uh, Jorge Sarmiento's Marimba Concerto is dedicated to her. She commissioned him to write that piece. Um, and then the one of the things I found really interesting, not musically related, was that she had um, she had a career change largely related to a cooking injury um, where she went and she studied linguistics at the University of Oklahoma. And then after that, she went to New Guinea and she worked with a tribe called the Usarufa tribe uh, with another female named Dr. Darlene B. And so uh, this was a tribe that was 
considered um, very sort of uh, barbarian in that, for one thing, they uh, they were cannibalistic with their deceased. So when someone passed away, they would uh, eat <laughs> eat them. <laughs> Um, and as well as uh, they were a polygamous society. So I think it was, he said, I think she said that most men had approximately four wives or something like that. Um, and also the, the tribes were in Africa were warring against each other. And the Australian government, I guess, that had colonialized uh, Africa and that region uh, prevented tribes from warring. So basically the men had nothing to do and the women were working all day. Um, so anyway, she went over there and, uh, she learned their language and she translated the Bible. And then she said that, uh, additionally, she found that the one thing that sort of brought people together was music. And so she worked to create sort of hymns in the style of their music, uh, and yeah, just spread the Bible and the, the quote unquote, the good word throughout Africa. So, um, yeah, very interesting person. Mark Ford had a nice little post about his interactions with her and he spoke about, uh, how at the Eric Samu concert, she didn't want to hear transcriptions, even though it was Eric Samu doing his own sort of brilliant work with transcriptions. So, yeah, just really interesting person and significant person in our field. Amazing that she lived such a long, you know, a long life, too. Yeah, for sure. I, I've, I've said it before when I met her. The only time I met her was just at, at, at PAS. She just came and sat by me in the little judge's row of marimba competition and was just very unassuming and polite. Didn't expect that I would know who she was, even when she said her name, Vida Chenoweth. And just, yeah, it was just, I don't know, just put me at ease. So even after she told me she was Vida Chenoweth, I was just, she was so easy to talk to. And um, yeah, I don't know, just just really nice. I have this record. I know I've shown you all this record before mm-hmm. that was left here by my predecessor, Bill Rice. And yeah, it's kind of, you know, of course, there's some great stuff on PAS, but it, it was hard to find what else was out there on her. And I was a little disappointed just in what I couldn't easily bump into. So I, th- I thought it might be nice just to read what's on the back of this under the artist real quick for y'all. It's not very long, but it says on the back of Vida Chenoweth, classic marimbist, it says the artist. Vida Chenoweth chose the marimba as her instrument because it was a challenge. Quote, in the little town of Enid, Oklahoma, where I was born, father sold musical instruments. For our Sunday entertainment, we were taken to the store where we could play the instrument of our choice. I was studying piano, but an infected finger prompted me to try the marimba, and I became fascinated. A marimba teacher lived in town. I studied with him for about a year when he left for lack of business. From then on, it was a matter of applying everything I knew about the piano and music to the marimba, I had to devise my own technique as I went along, uh, end quote. So now Miss Chenoweth was the first to play a polyphon- to play polyphonically <laughs> on the instrument. Uh. Uh, yeah, I know. And it's not something we really say anymore. Uh. Play polyphonically on the instrument. And to learn to do that required tremendous patience. It took her nine months to work out her first Bach chorale. Quote, Bach has opened up all the technique of the marimba for me. I learned, for instance, to do mordants with two mounts in one hand, a feat which I was told couldn't be done. The Bach I play is already so beautifully outlined for the marimba that I don't have to alter it. I play all the music exactly as written. I never transcribe or adapt. I find, too, that there is no end to the striving for new colors. 
end quote. This devoted young musician, slight with sparkling blue eyes of Welsh descent and charmingly frank of manner, has not had an easy time gaining acceptance for the unusual instrument whose difficult technique she has so thoroughly mastered. Her debut on November 18, 1956 in New York's Town Hall was made without the unusual fanfare, but the audience soon realized that it was in the presence of an artist of unusual gifts, nor were the critics long to follow suit. Quote, she is expert virtuoso, no false notes were detected, her rhythm superb, her confidence epical. Every inch an artist, let's see, a star performance and a bewitching one, no question of that. Today, Ms. Chenoweth has shown that her faith in the marimba as an instrument worthy of the concert hall status has been fully justified. Her crowded schedule of concert engagements is ample proof. She has become to the marimba what Segovia is to the guitar, Ms. Chenoweth teaches at Wheaton College. And then there's a little blurb about the instrument and the, the, the music on there. What year is the album from, Casey? 1960. Uh, where is it? Where is it? I know I saw this just recently. I will tell you. Could you also tell us what's on the record? I see the Fissinger Suite, which is a good old school piece. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Um, 1962. 62. Okay. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, I don't see that anywhere Sorry. on the actual record, but 1962 sounds like what I saw. So, yeah, sure, Ben. We got Bach Choral. We have, what else do we have? Bach Sonata in G minor, Telemann Canonic Sonata in A major, Fischinger Suite. And this one I looked into a little bit. I actually printed the first page off of Steve Weiss, a little preview, and I think I'm going to learn it someday. Lorraine Goodrich, Octave Etude in D minor, and then Omar Musser Etudes, G major, B flat major, excuse me, G major, B major, C major, and A flat major. Bill Rice transferred a bunch of these records of his to tape. So I have it on tape, but something (laughs) is wrong with how it plays back. It plays back at a slow speed. So I have to figure out a way to adjust it or something because I was going to rip some of it and somehow try to play it for you. But I I figured it out on YouTube a different way. And then I also got distracted because right next to it, he had a, a tape called Motivation for Conductors by Buddy Rich. And it is one of those infamous Buddy Rich tapes that we've all heard about and are really ridiculous and hilarious. I just I just looked up that uh, octave etude that you mentioned, and it's like it's all octaves in triplets at 144. And it's really hard at 144. Yeah, there's like some pretty intense jumps. It looks like That's it's definitely... four mallet. It looks like it's two mallet, but it's four. Are you sure? Because and... the, at the top left of the page, it has a little image of two mallets i know i saw that if you read the steve weiss description it says four and if you if you once you lay hands on it with four you'll see oh yeah this makes a lot more sense with four like it's at least more idiomatic with four but i thought the same thing i thought no this has got to be two i'm still not convinced i think (laughs) i'm just like just looking at it like because there'd be a lot of sort of interplay like you know screw you man i'm doing it with two casey I want to see you do it with two. We'll have a competition. <laughs> yeah, I initially thought the same thing. It's definitely two, and there's definitely no L in Histoire du Soldat. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's still... We still okay, to cut yeah. the banter, I, when I was searching for that date, Casey, um, on the Wiki, her Wikipedia page, the Wikipedia page about her, I'm just noticing her publications. It's amazing. I mean, she's written... 
about 10 books, maybe more, and just so many articles. She was so active as a writer all the way until 2006 or something in Percussive Notes. Yep. 2006. I mean, yeah. it seems like her output is just, she's just very active mm -hmm. all the way until she was sick, I think. We have a lot of old PAS publications, percussive notes, and mm -hmm. I think God, I think the earliest one in there is something like the late 60s, and then every once in a while there's a number missing or so, but we have we have a lot of them here, and I'll pull one wow. out at random, and I've seen a lot of Ida Chenoweth stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, she gave us a lot. Carly, I'm curious, um, reading your bio, you do a lot of teaching and a lot of playing, and like you're, you teach at FIU, as you mentioned, but also on your, your website, it says Miami Music Project, Westminster Christian School, Ransom Everglades School, Florida Christian School, South Florida Youth Symphony. You do a lot of teaching, and I, I know you're a very active player uh, as well. So I'm just curious how you sort of balance all of that, and what are some tactics for people who are doing something similar to you? Would you have any advice? Well, yeah. Um... Well, it's it's I think I think we all struggle with balance sometimes between between all the things that we do and maintaining all these, you know, long term and short term deadlines. And then uh, for me, every day, my schedule's a little different. I might be going to a different school or different place for rehearsals. Um, I'm super organized. I have a paper calendar. I'm one of those one of those people. And one side is like, here's my schedule, what I'm doing day to day. And the other side is my to do list. Like, all the things, the emails I have to send, you know, whatever, whatever other things, like what, what do I have to practice for this week? What's going on now? Um, and for me, that's the only way because every day is a little different and I just have to have to manage. Here's what's coming up this week. Here's what's coming up next month. Here's all these different things I have to do. Um, but yeah, it gets, it gets a little crazy. Um, the South Florida music and freelance scene is like really busy from September, October, all the way through April or May, and then over the summer, you know, it's, it's some teaching, and there's there's a lot fewer concerts, so it's it's balanced in that way, too. Sometimes, you know, in the super busy times, you have to think, like, okay, like, buckle my seatbelt, let's go, and then in the summer, that's when you have time to catch up on different projects and also just, like, recover, rest, and relax, and, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, the the organization is is key. Like my my to do list, I would be lost without that in the paper calendar. Um, uh, I have to make sure I schedule. Like here's the time of the day I'm going to do emails. Otherwise, you guys know emails can take over your life. Just like if you if you deal with everything as it comes in, all of a sudden like you haven't practiced, you haven't done all the other things you need to do. So it's usually I've got a, a chunk of time at the end of the day that's email time because um, I got to practice as much as I can, squeeze it in um, during the day. Uh-huh. But yeah, it's it's a little crazy. But you know, I think I think we all teachers and, and performers and you know, most of us are doing both. Um I think we all have to be that kind of that kind of really organized, um, put together just to just to make it through. Yeah, definitely. I completely agree with you about the organization. Sometimes if I, could, I, if I could latch on to that, actually I have a, a sort of follow-up question. So Carly's husband, Felipe, is a bassoon player that does basically the exact same thing. So could you tell us about, if you don't mind sharing your personal life, how, how you guys, I guess, work that out between the two of you? Uh, yeah, well, it's, it's both of us, you know, 
both of us every day is a little different. Hey, like every night we kind of say, hey, what do you have tomorrow? Where are you going tomorrow? And, um, you know, he's even teaching at more schools than I am and sometimes playing in far farther away places. Um, but yeah, you know, I, in some ways, like it's double crazy because we're both we're both so scattered. But in other ways, I think like I don't know how a non-musician would ever deal with this. Like, how could you understand <laughs> that? Like tomorrow I'm working from 8 a.m. to 11 p.m. and the next day I don't work maybe until noon, you know, just every day being different and like the hours. And yeah, I know I haven't been home in 14 hours, but I got to go and practice. Like, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> so it works out, you know. Mm-hmm. Carly, you've had a lot of success as a freelancer when we when we were doing your your intro, I think a lot of people might be hearing that and think, oh, okay, she's an adjunct professor at this school, so that's like her her gig. But a lot of this is you, you, you put things together in Miami, right? Yeah, yeah, a lot of, it's a lot of moving pieces um, and a lot of things have been working out. But um, yeah, you know, if, if sometimes students ask like, how do I get gigs? How do I find, like, how do I, how do I do this? And and there's some of the some of the same advice like we've all heard and probably we've all said like um, of course show up on time always be prepared. Um, a good way I tell my students is like be fun like be nice to work with like make sure that that the people you're playing with have have a good time like being around you. Um, uh, like be nice and normal and cool and and all of that and then on top of that it's like be in the right place at the right time and meet the right. Person. There's there's an element of, um, you know, we have some control over over how we come across, but also it's like luck, like with, with anything else in this business of meeting the right person at the right time. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, I really enjoy like the, the different gigs I get to do here. I love playing with the opera and symphony concerts. And we've been doing some of these um, Harry Potter live film concerts. And those are super fun. The Wizard of Oz over the summer. Um, so yeah, you know, freelancing can be can be tough, but on the other hand, it's it's what I love is like doing a different thing all the time. Like you will never ever get bored. Um, there's just enough routine if you get used to like on Mondays I'm at this school and Tuesdays I'm here, but um, you never get tired of of doing the same thing every day. That's for sure. Well, I I feel like we we often hear that be at the right place at the right time, and that there is a element of luck, but I. It's, it's probably more than that, right? Like you purposefully put yourself in the path of luck, right? I think so. I mean, a, a lot of, you guys know this, a lot, of, a lot of what we do is based on the right person referring us to the right person, you know, teacher recommendations. Right. That. Um, and so, you know, I, I think about this with my students too. Like you never know who's listening to you. Somebody might see you in a concert and think like, think oh oh yeah that person was great in that concert I need somebody for this coming up so it's kind of bringing your a-game all the time no matter what you don't know who's who you're going to meet who you're going to talk to who's going to hear you play um, all those things. Carly as a freelancer do you own a lot of your own instruments and do you bring them to the gigs or are you often using instruments from the schools you teach at or how does that work as a freelancer in Miami? Yeah, so down here, you know, it depends. There's um, there's a couple of players that have vans and have everything that they ever need. 
Um, so for me, it depends on the gig. There's sometimes like, like for the Harry Potter shows we've been doing recently, it's so much stuff that um, we split it up and like, I'll be the one I bring my vibraphone and I'll bring crotales and, you know, small stuff, symbols and stuff like that. Um, you know, the, I think the older that I get, the less I love moving equipment. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's fine when I need to do it. Like I, I do love, like I, I like playing on my instruments and, and yeah. knowing like, I know this. Um, but it's, it's a lot of work. It adds a lot of work to the work that you're already doing. Of, yeah. Playing. Um, so, you know, if, if I know somebody else is playing the gig and they're going to bring this, that's, that's great. That's cool. Um, or sometimes there's a, there's a rental company down here. Sometimes that's the, that's the easiest option too. Yeah. So a lot, a lot of this is, uh, resonating with, I had an experience with Carly and talking about like, you know, being well-connected, being a nice person, easy to work with. So Carly and I had a gig and Carly was bringing timpani for me to play and I was <laughs> bringing percussion for Carly to play. And so I, I stole a bunch of instruments from FAU where I was teaching at the time. The problem is that I brought a gong stand, but not a gong. <laughs> and it doesn't work so, without the gong. So, well, we get to the rehearsal and Carly gets pissed at me because she's going to look like an idiot. Luckily, the rehearsal was so poorly run that we didn't even get to her one gong note. So we freak out, and there was no time to run like an hour north back to Boca Raton and get back in time for the gig. But there was time to run to University of Miami. So we called Svet, and he was very kind to let us borrow a gong. And yeah, like there's that sort of freelancers helping each other out sort of thing that, oh, shoot, I totally forgot to bring a gong. You have a gong. Can I borrow it? Yeah, of course. Like No, no rental fee involved or anything like that. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> but always make a checklist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's Both the good. instrument and the stand. That's that's a very good uh, very good freelance piece of advice actually everything that I do um, I make a list the night before here's all the things I'm taking and then you you take that list with you um, and when you're packing at the end of the day like here's all the, the things going back in my car yeah easy to get mixed up I'm sure oh, yeah. can we have a little discussion about breaking in breaking into a city or into a scene and and I think Carly would be great for this but also if any, anyone else has anything to add. Like Carly, I think because you've done this successfully in Miami, but you also did it in Boston. It's like one of the most saturated musical, one of the big saturated musical cities. Yeah, um, you know, I think I think a common piece of advice is um, say yes to everything that you can do in the beginning, um, and especially you know, if, especially if you're you're getting paid. Um, little or even nothing which is in a great situation then say yes once maybe meet people leave a really good impression and if if the money's not there later to make it worthwhile for you say no i'm sorry i'm not available um but i think if if you're moving to a new city and or or just finishing school and you want to break into a scene um you've got to meet people and you never know you know who might be directing a community orchestra that also directs another another group something like that um, say yes to as much as as makes sense. Um, and then as as you get more and more work, I think what you have to do is you always have to weigh um, two things. I think the the musical value that the performance or or rehearsal process, everything will have for you. Like, am I gonna learn something from this? Am I gonna really like like enjoy it musically? Um, and then also weigh it with the time commitment and how much money you'll get from it. Um, you know, especially one thing I talk about with my students is if you're driving 
you know, 70 miles or 100 miles for a gig, you have to think about think about like the mileage deduction that the IRS allows you and think like that's at least what I'm spending just to get there. So you have to make sure it makes sense for you financially to do everything. Um, but I think I think in the beginning, it's a really good idea to do what you can make the connections that you can. Um, I know some people send like cold emails or will will send like or or just cold call people like hi this like I'm here in Miami and I'm a percussionist um, I'm interested in playing and I personally I don't know how successful that ever is because it's tough when it's like just out of the blue I don't know this person I think we're all hesitant to call people if we don't know them we haven't met them haven't heard them play or haven't played with them um, but recommendations mean a whole lot and you know the more people that you meet somebody will say oh I played I played with this person and they did well and they were cool and then at least if you know somebody that knows this person, it's a lot easier. What do you What do you guys say to that argument of? Because I got I got in a little discussion once about just a little job posting that would be pretty good for students. And after you calculated the driving, the hours, the, like it was less than minimum wage. And so you, some people are saying no, like we have a responsibility to the craft and to each other to not accept those type of gigs because the, if we keep accepting bad pay like that, people will <laughs> like keep paying us all badly. So, yes. and of course I'm kind of on the other side just saying like, but we can't all like unilaterally just like decide as a hive mind to collectively turn all these down. It only works if we all do it like a, like a uh, union. So yeah. Meanwhile, while, we're advising some people are advising students to turn those gigs down. Other students are taking them and getting a leg up on their resume, yeah. and that sort of thing. It's like I get it, but I don't. I personally don't want my students to be um, martyrs for the cause. Uh, so I don't know. What do you guys think of that? It, it brings to mind to me what John Parks said about adjunct teaching, where yeah, like adjunct teaching, a lot of the time it's a crappy gig. You get walked all over. You don't, you know, get paid well. Uh, your students might not be the greatest, but you're using it as sort of a stepping stone to get to the next place. And so right. you go in there, if you get a, you know, your first adjunct teaching gig, you teach like a tenure track job, you do recitals, you recruit, you do everything right. Um, and so like, I think for someone like say, let's say Megan Arns, taking this sort of less than minimum wage job, probably not, not a good idea, but for a freshman student that's never had a freelance experience at all, I think it's a, it's a great thing. And uh, I think that the, uh, the, contractor is going to get what they pay for uh and i think everyone's well aware of if you're only willing to pay 25 dollars for three hours of rehearsal you're probably not going to get someone of say megan's caliber but uh you know like yeah it can be a good experience and something is better than nothing so i think using it as a stepping stone is fine but you know i don't think any of us are taking those really really poor gigs at this point yeah i wish there was a way to explain explain it in terms of an investment like you're going to lose money when you buy a set of mallets right you give up money to gain mallets but it's very easy to see that as an investment it's like well i'm going to use these mallets to increase my skills and learn music and do my auditions and blah blah blah, blah. like makes perfect sense like of course we understand that but i wonder if a gig that you do for free or you lose money on or you even pay money to do we can't just explain as the same type of investment yeah and i think it's even more challenging like when when you do have a full-time job because 
sometimes I feel obligated to do things in the community and I want to also, you know, Mm -hmm. do things that are, yeah, definitely don't pay as much as we know they're supposed to be paying, but you know, it's a gesture to the community or somebody who's helped you out before what there's a lot of, I think pro bono work that happens in, you know, in smaller communities and when you're full time at a university. So sometimes I have difficulty balancing that, you know, saying when to say yes and when to say no. Yeah. 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 Um, Well, for me with, with students, one of the things that I talk with my students about is like they're, when you're in school, at least your number one job is your academics. So if there's anything pulling you away from your major ensemble, your percussion ensemble, your academic requirements, that's going to cause you to suffer in those areas later. It's not worth it. Even if it's professional work, even if it's, you know, that's like, you got to get your degree. That's really important. Um, and, and from there, like, if you have the time and energy and it makes sense for you, do it, you know, and it's, it's kind of a case by case basis, but I think it's it's tricky because you know if somebody is able and willing to to do a gig for fifty dollars a service, um, what does that mean for those of us that are trying to play gigs for much more than fifty dollars a service? You know, you don't want to undercut, um, but also like like. Sorry, can you repeat that, Carly? You cut out for just a second. You said you were real excited as a student to get a paid gig. It was just yeah. Like that's huge for you know for your bank account when you're in school. Like I'm getting paid to yeah. play music right now. Like that's great. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a tricky balance sometimes. I, I've had other percussionists tell me like, what you can't you can't teach a student who's passing through for free. That's making the rest of us look like jackasses. Like wow, well, yeah. Sorry, I I don't know. <laughs> Wait, what was that? It was it, teach a student for free. Yeah, like Casey, don't don't sell your services for zero dollars because then you're setting a precedent and an expectation for the rest of us. And I I'm not willing to teach for free, so you shouldn't either. And it's just it's like it's just like oh uh, yeah, screw you. I don't care. I don't know. It's like that's your that sounds like a you problem, not a me problem. <laughs> it's like yeah. hey, well, thanks so much for joining us, Carly. This has been a really fun episode. And Megan and Ben, thanks a bunch. And Laurel, I think you're you're off now, but. Good to see you on Skype, and I'll see you all. Uh... <laughs> sometimes, sometimes you just start saying stuff and hope it comes out right, but it often doesn't. <laughs> hey, thanks so much for having me on this week, guys. Yeah, with you. yeah, sure, sure, sure. Okay, well, everybody, take it easy. We'll catch you on uh, one seventy-two. I think is next. So, all right, bye, everybody. Sounds good. Bye. Hey.